I'm Loki Karuna, and this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for coming back for another opus of the show. Shout out to the returning listeners and to all of the day one listeners. And shout out to the relatively new folks here. If this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show built to decolonize classical music as a means toward broader decolonial thought around the arts, our lives, and society as a whole. Each week I bring forward some news or some sort of drama that I think is relevant to the idea of a decolonial thought, maybe some contemporary media. I feature a conversation with folks working toward expanded approaches to various aspects of our arts ecosystems, and I close things out with a triloquy. For more information about me and the folks who have helped make this show possible, to check out past opuses of the show, and to donate, visit our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. I'm really happy to bring James Daly to the show this week. He's doing some really great things out on the West Coast that I'll speak to here in a couple of minutes. But for right now, I want to highlight one of the points in the conversation you're about to hear that I think is really important. So when we, uh, so, you know, when you work in the arts as some sort of entrepreneur, a CEO, just someone really uh, with the responsibility of keeping things moving and keeping things af- uh, afloat, writing grants and building funding relationships is a huge part of that work. Unfortunately, probably the biggest part of the work more often than not, in my experience. So as you can imagine, or as you may already know, the narratives that you put forward in these grant applications and in these asks for funding, that part of the work is vital, that story that you're telling to you know, the stakeholders and all the folks with some money. James talk a l- talks a little about how itchy it can be to present narratives around being a marginalized person of color within the arts who grew up poor, X, Y, and Z, yada, yada. But that's what the people on these grant panels want to hear, right? Now that's I think that's one of the questions that uh, is, is explored here. You know, I saw a movie a few weeks back called American Fiction. I highly, highly recommend this film. It's basically about a black writer who's dealing with the fact that blackness has become so trendy in the world of the literary arts. It's not enough to be black in the field. You have to write a book that, you know, puts forward other people's idea of blackness. In the case of the main character uh, of uh, this movie, American Fiction, he writes a book from the perspective of a fictional ex-con who doesn't want to reveal his identity as a joke, but the whole book ends up being a, a blockbuster hit. Now, the nuance here is that this character isn't just trying to get rich. He's sort of spiteful about the idea that books that uh, reduce the black experience and black perspectives to stereotypes uh, is a is a, a huge problem. So just as a joke, he does this and it ends up taking off. But he doesn't do this in an effort to get rich. As I said, he has a mutt in the film. He has a mother to take care of. His sister uh, died suddenly. There's all kind of life happening to this character. And that's the same thing for artists looking for grants out here in the real world. Life always happens. So it's one of those questions that you have to negotiate. You know, do I tell the real story? Do I tell the story that I think is going to get folks attention? Do I marginalize myself or tokenize myself for the sake of uh, getting this funding and, and making you know my dreams come true and dreams that positively impact other people of color? You know, at the end of the day, I think it's just a personal decision based on your personal values and your goals when it comes to engaging these sorts of conversations. But I wanted to highlight it very briefly before we hopped into the interview, because I appreciate the fact that James brought it to the front. It kind of gets glossed over 
um, because that idea in particular wasn't the point of what he was saying, but it's something very, very important to uh, underscore, I believe, every chance we get. So a little about James. He's a pianist. He's a composer. Uh, he's the CEO of the San Ramon Academy of Music, and he's also the CEO of a brand called The Powerful Piano. I'll have links to some of his work in the description of this opus, but uh, I hope that you'll think about these things, especially self-tokenization and the narratives connected to our funding structures as you listen uh, to this uh, conversation. You know, there's a lot of intersectional relationships to consider, personal values, lived experience, a love for music, um, very real financial challenges that uh, exist out here in the world. There's a lot to consider. It's not just a a black and white conversation. I was uh, really happy to explore some of these uh, themes and others with uh, James in this dialogue. So to get us uh, into the dialogue, we're going to hear James play a little Chopin. This is James's take on a piano etude by Chopin as a nice musical transition into our dialogue. Hope you all enjoyed this music and hope you enjoy our conversation as well. easier for me than other educators uh, just because it's had such a profound impact on all just literally the way that I live my life it's a very I think life is very experiential obviously sometimes you have to touch the stove to know it's hot you know what I mean (laughs) Um, and I think because of literally how music has taken my life from one trajectory to a complete opposite I think that Growing up, I didn't have a lot of the safety nets that may be more like affluent, um, let's be honest, like, you know, Caucasian or, you know, well off, like higher socioeconomic uh, class like families do. So um, I definitely was engaged in a path that's like pretty stereotypical. And it was really music that um, took me to where I am now and where I'm trying to go. When you talk about those safety nets, I I usually think about a lack of a safety net as what forced me to find a little bit of success. I I I shouldn't be so you know humble, but find the success that I was able to have, especially as a bassoonist. I knew that you know this is what I know how to do. I'm not an accountant. I'm not even a fisherman. So I I better be practicing and figuring something out. Does that apply to you and your trajectory at all? I wonder. You know, I knew that I loved music. But I think my relationship with classical music when I was a kid was very complicated because I started young and actually stopped lessons for a Mm. good period of time. Um, I think definitely, what is it, uh, Durkheim's Anime. I remember reading that in like a social class in uh, college and I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's what that is. Um, Where you just feel like so isolated, you know, from the group because I wasn't processing it at the time. But, you know, when you're young and it's like you're me and my mom are like the only people of color at the recitals, you know, or the competition or like whatever it is, you're not thinking about it. 
but it definitely like representation matters. There's a reason it's so important, right? So you're you're processing uh, whether you're aware, you know, consciously or subconsciously of what's happening. So I think my my path to classical music was very circuitous, more so than someone that stayed in school for you know or private lessons for a really long time. Um, so because of that, the answer to your question is yes. I knew I was a musician, but I didn't realize I was a classical musician until much later in the game. <laughs> Think more people, about that. What what kind of musician did you see yourself as? Well, so I played, I started playing when I was really young. My mom is a violinist. My grandmother is a concert pianist. My grandma's story is crazy. She like um, went to LSU and then Dillard. So both like Southern schools in the 1950s. Wow. So that's like before desegregation. She's told me stories of like her professors giving her music to fail. Like, it's so crazy. She's, she was telling me she did this, uh, it's a pretty famous piece by Prokofiev that's like Toccata in D and it's like new music at the time. And I'm like, bro, that's wild <laughs> to think of that as like new. Uh, but just, you know, like terror, terrible things, like people throwing bricks through her windows, crosses on the lawn, like the whole, the, uh, the whole nine yards. Right. Um, so I started very young. Um, but like I said, the way I think that I was taught, the way that classical music was presented, I, there was definitely a disconnect for me and I knew I loved music. So I actually taught myself other instruments. So I played bass and guitar and keyboard in like punk bands, metal bands, hardcore bands. I found that those musical communities were so inclusive. Like if you've ever been to a punk show, you know, like everyone picks each other up. It's like, there's violence and chaos. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's like camaraderie and brotherhood and like a a real sense of like, oh, you can be weird as hell here. And like, you're normal because everyone is weird, you know, um, that really stuck with me. And um, it wasn't until I went to community college, I took a music uh, class, like a very basic like music theory class because I was like, oh, I want to write some music for my band that um, I like totally fell back in love with music. And then yeah. I realized like the uphill battle that I had uh being well i also i also dropped out of high school too um that's kind of another thing but i was like 17 and like trying to relearn how to read music so i could transfer um to college and just became like this obsession uh that i had um and then you know here we are now but it wasn't until i shout out professor dutton at uh santa monica community college when i took that first intro to music class with him that i was like something just clicked and i was like oh yeah this is what i want to do um, and then from there, yeah, it was on a crack. So have you yet mastered that Prokofiev Takata and D and, you know, in celebration <laughs> no. of your grandmother? <laughs> I've never tried it. I, you know, it's interesting now, like the music that I play is very much like the stuff that like, I really love, you know, when I was, you know, when you're in school, you have to put together like a contrasting program. So I did all the, mm-hmm. the stuff that I was supposed to as best as I could. I definitely felt very self-conscious of uh, my abilities. But, you know, now I play a lot of like Ravel, Rachmaninoff. My son's middle name is Frederick for a reason. <laughs> I probably played more Chopin than any other composer. So I've done almost all the Nocturnes, about half the Etudes, half the Blot. There's only four, but I've done two of the Blots, like a lot of a lot of Chopin. Um, I've never really got, I remember in college, like my, uh, when I did a study abroad thing, one of the professors gave me I'm totally going to butcher the French. It's like Dudelo or something. I think that was his name. Uh, he gave me a piano piece by this dude. And I just, I was so I like, you. I don't know. Yeah. There <laughs> you go. Yeah. I'm like very bad at, at uh, foreign languages, but yeah, I just hated it. I was like, can we do anything else? 
<laughs> and he was nice enough to switch. But yeah, for now, those are the things that that I really like to play: romantic, impressionistic, some some Mozart or Haydn. You know. So fun. we talk. We've talked a lot about uh, the possibilities and how you know a music education can really feed the human. But I think it's always important to talk about barriers as well. And I think mm. one of the barriers that we don't often talk about are cultural barriers. We can talk about money as a variable. Uh, you need uh, a ride to your lessons. You got to have something to practice on yourself when you get at home, if you don't happen to have a piano, all, all of that recognized. I wonder what your uh, engagement with cultural barriers have been we you know there's the age-old story of oh this is white people's music or you know oh why are you doing that instead of this what what has that conversation looked like for you it's definitely been a reconciliation like mentally of that because that is it is true like it is true you know like the major proponents of classical music are like dead white guys you know like it's all the composers i just named are dead white guys right um but and this is this is something that i find so fascinating there's something like when you listen to well-played beethoven it's just there's like it's perfection there's just something that is so universally profound i remember one of my uh one of my teachers in college I had to play a lot of Bach when I was a kid and that was something I really didn't like. You know, I started playing like the inventions when I was like six and it just, it was just too early. Right. And I was telling my teacher, I was like, I really don't want to do this. Like prelude and fugue. Can we do anything else? She's like, you need this for your program. She's like, all right, go into nature and listen to some Bach. And she's like, if you come back from that and you're really not feeling it, I'll never ask you to do it again. And I went, I listened to the partitas and I'm like sobbing in like the woods by myself. Like, wow, this is so profound. So I think, that that undeniable connection to like the human condition is what helped me reconcile that cultural difference. I think that something that's really important to me um, with like the nonprofit uh, program that we do is changing the narrative of what classical music is, what it represents. So like the shirt that I'm wearing, like this is supposed to be like Franz Liszt, but he's got like, you know, a, a champagne bottle. He's like covered in face tattoos. He's wearing chains and stuff. Cause I think like, <laughs> If they were modern composers, they would look more like Post Malone than they would like the, you know, the paintings that we see of like a Chopin or Liszt. I think that right. the disconnect between time periods is something that really holds us back. And I think that something I was really lucky to do in Berkeley was take other classes. Because when I went to UC Berkeley, I was able to take up like philosophy, psychology, sociology, and you're learning about like all these things that are happening in the 1800s, 1700s, 1900s in conjunction with this music. And the narrative that that forms in your mind is more powerful than those cultural barriers. But I feel it all the time. Like when I was in the music department, they'd be like, I, I got asked multiple times, like, why are you here? <laughs> or like people would see you and they're like, oh, like, don't you play sports? Like the mm -hmm. most sports people are in Wheeler, you know, because that's what the social department is. Or when they did find out I was a music manager, like, oh, you're a jazz drummer, right? No, like, what? Yeah. no, not at all. So, you know, there was like three people of color in the music department when I was there. Right. So you feel that it's not that is always omnipresent, you know, and I feel like my playing is judged harsher. I feel like the way that I present myself is judged even more. You know, even when I present mm -hmm. myself to parents, students, teachers, um, it's kind of like the moon. You're only going to get like a certain sliver because I've realized there's a certain way that people are comfortable 
hearing me speak, hearing me talk, hearing me present myself. And then once we get past that, then they can start to learn a little bit more about you. And then it's like, oh, wow, you, you know, you're a person and this is this thing that you really like to do. I wonder why. And then I think that's where the larger connection with music for students, parents, teachers, all that stuff can happen. I mean, and not to make any um, excuses for the people who make assumptions about you, but for the sake of people who are just listening to this, <laughs> you know, you are black. Yes, but you're you have muscles, you have tattoos. There's so much more that you're bringing to the so-called classical table that you don't typically see, <laughs> you know, if I could, just, at least in my experience, you know. Oh, no, it's very true. It's very true. And I think, you know, when you're asking at the beginning, like, how do you relate you know, these life lessons to my students, because there is this visual contrast, this visual, like, duality, where you're like, how can these two things coexist? And I'm like, well, music has taught me to be disciplined. Music has taught me perseverance. Music has taught me optimism. It's taught me empathy. It's taught me all these things. So I just apply that to everything. Like, I'm not, like, fit or whatever, because it's separate. I'm fit because it's the exact same thing. It's just expressed in a different medium. But it's it's the same tools. You know? Okay. Okay, I, I guess that's inspiring us for the new year, all of these New Year's <laughs> resolutions. <laughs> I want to I talk a little bit about the uh, San Ramon Academy of Music. So, you know, first and foremost, uh, before we get into what this academy is, why are you teaching independently as opposed to being in schools? Some would argue that, you know, being visible in those spaces would have so much of an impact, especially for young Black students. So we are actually in the process of that right now, I think. Oh, okay. um, yeah. So we have a nonprofit program. It's called the San Ramon Chamber Ensemble. We actually just got funding from the state. I'm finally allowed to say it. It's just we got it last September. Um, <clears throat> so I've, I viewed it as it's almost like a Trojan horse, right? Like to do good, you, you have to have currency literally and like figuratively, you know, you have to have some weight behind what you're doing, whether it's monetary or just prestigious, you know, you're a pedagogue of like a high degree or something. Um, so when I started the school, it was originally just like, because I was frustrated working in like the private school environment. I felt like just a cog in a machine. I felt that mm. I wasn't able to make the impact that I wanted to on students. And I was like, you know, I'm gonna just do this myself. I don't realize like all that that entails. <laughs> and it's definitely been a very slow, serendipitous process where things have just unfolded in a very blessed way for me to get the school to the, the, the space that it's at now. Um, but I feel that I can have a greater impact on students because I control the messaging. I mm. control who we hire. I control the culture that we set. Um, something that we do for our recitals, every recital, I don't care if you're five or 18, there's like a recital question that you put. And so instead of being, hello, my name is, today I'm playing Prelude in C by J.S. Bach, thank you. And then mm -hmm. you bow you answer the question. So you say one thing that music has taught me is blank or one thing that learning music has helped me overcome outside of playing an instrument is blank. So teaching students to use those critical thinking skills to see that there is direct application from the skills that we're trying to help them harness to what they present themselves as, who they will be later in life. You know, your habits define you as, as a person, right? For better or for worse. Um, so that's always been something that's important. And now that the school is at this place, I've had time, I mean, not a lot, but <laughs> I feel very um, motivated to work on this nonprofit um, program. So what we've been doing is we have some, um, 
workshops, like for instance, coming up in Oakland. So some schools in Oakland, we've like partnered with a larger nonprofit group that does music programs. So I'm coming in and playing chamber music. I came in already and it was so much fun. It was so much fun because these kids are just like, whoa, like you play piano? And you're like, yes, dog, come over here. Let me show you <laughs> something. And you bust out a Chopin etude or something. And they're just like, you see like the, the fireworks exploding, you know? And that's, it's so, it's so rewarding. And it's definitely something that I would like to shift, you know, my, the bulk of my practice and my work towards, but it's always, it's just a, it's a gradual, gradual journey, you know? I have to admit that I'm surprised to hear you say you felt like a cog in a machine in a private school. I think many of us are familiar with the challenges when it comes to music education and public schools, but I wonder if you could speak more to where you were feeling limited. I mean, mm. you mentioned freedom of the messaging, freedom of who you hire. What what was keeping you from engaging the students in the way that you wanted to in that situation? Well, the culture of the workplace. So it was very much like you get so many students, they don't care if anyone stays or leaves because people mm. are constantly rotating. Um, I think the quality of the instructor, and I don't think I'm the greatest instructor. I just really care. So I think that makes a big difference. And I think the quality of the instructor was so disparate. Like I would substitute for kids and I'd be like, all right, let's use your metronome. And they're like, what? I'm like, how long have you taken piano lessons? You never use a metronome, dude? Mm -hmm. um, like basic stuff like that. Or we're talking, you know, like, all right. So when we move our hand, you know, here's, here's where we lift. And then the wrist is relaxed here. And then we use this wrist motion. They're like, what? And I'm like, like a gesture. Like we, we, you, we play with gestures. And they're like, what? And I'm like, okay. So when your finger is curled, you want to maintain the same shape because it's a shorter distance down and up for the key. So it mm -hmm. allows you to play faster and do more. And then just, I keep getting what's. And I'm like, wow. So you're just coming in. Your teacher's telling you to do something and play it. And that is like the extent of your relationship. And something that I always do in my lessons is I tell parents, I'm like, look, I'm going to take the first two to five minutes to talk to them period. Like, and that's part of the process. Cause if they like me, they're going to practice more. And I experienced that with my teachers. I remember my first recital at Cal, I was so nervous. And my teacher is the sweet little old white lady. <laughs> and she like in the middle of lessons would like get on the bench and be like, your melody has to soar. And I was like scared she was going to fall and like break a hip, you know, but she was like <laughs> so into it that I practiced so much because I was like, I want her belief in me to be validated when I get up on this stage. And I think that that mentorship aspect is something that I didn't really feel was valued in that private environment because it was very results driven, right? Like, did you pass this exam? Did you win this competition? Um, or the flip side of the parents that just bring the kids in and they're just like, all right, I can be on my phone for 30 minutes. So I don't, I don't really care what you do in here, you yeah. know? Yeah. 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 You're speaking to the joy of music. I think especially those of us classically trained, it's not about joy. It's about structure it's about perfection and if we could i feel like if we can really just get past that and really tap back into what makes us happy about playing music mm. that in itself will inspire students to want to spend more time in front of the keyboard or whatever instrument they play at the same time you know there are these other just structural things that are in place that uh I, I would love for you to speak to for example you talk about how you're a, a, at least a third generation musician you know, so many of these students go back to, ho to homes that are very loving and all of those things, but those parents don't know how to reinforce, you know, you need to go practice or, you know, those, those sorts of things. How do you extend your impact beyond, you know, when the student is sitting right there in front of you? 
I think communication is important. And this is also part of the reason why I established my own school, because I make a point to check in with our teachers, with our parents, with our students. So I've taught at least to some extent, like all the students that we have at our academy, Mm. whether it's through like the workshops we do, I'm doing a free master class on piano technique. I'm like, so fascinated by the biomechanics of movement um, and how it relates to how we play because we think of it as like oh it's this artistic thing but it's literally a physical activity so just like there's the physics of technique in weightlifting for example it's very easy to see you know it's the same thing in piano it's just it's different but it's the same at the same time Um, so offering these things being supportive to teachers give it paying them more (laughs) that always helps Um, you know talking to parents, sending them emails, talking to the kids. Um, so I think that's important. But I, I do think, you know, the more people learn about me and my story. So when I, my first music, real music job out of school was I was a music director at this school, St. Anthony's in Oakland. It's off at International and like 15th, I think. And like, just to kind of paint the picture, there's like open prostitution, like on the street. You know, like I took the kids to the park one day and like, I'll never forget this little six-year-old. Brenda so cute she's like that's a prostitute Mr. Jensen like yep and we're gonna keep moving (laughs) um so being there and having kids that were like raised by their grandparents or their aunts or uncles because their parents were incarcerated or passed or had lost family members and stuff to like violence um you know just being able to tell these parents like look like I grew up here and I was able I went to school for free I got paid to go to UC Berkeley and I'm not the greatest pianist but it's because I persevered and I went through all these things and like, this is a tool. And we, in the black community, especially we view like sports and entertainment, right? Like, and so many of these kids, man, we're like, dad's like, no, he's going to play football. I'm like, no, he's not. Like you can immediately tell, but with music, there's, you can find, you can get in where you fit in. You don't have yeah. to be the Michael Jordan of music to be able to get an amazing music education, to understand and learn about cultures, make friends, just, I, I remember just being in these different places with people that I was like, wow, like I can do the same things that they're doing. And I would have never thought that. So I think my story is really what allows me to say emphatically, like th- this is a path, this is a path that you can take. Um, and then having the school, you know, it really allows me to control that messaging and that culture. Yeah. Yeah. There's room and a need in this world for Beyonce and Solange. You know, it's not about. Mm-hmm. Yes. I like <laughs> um, Solange too, by the way. So oh, me too. That oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah that's, that's no shade at all. Um, <laughs> so it takes more than just great musical skills to build an academy like you've built. What are some of the other things that you've had to experience in, in maintaining this project? Mentorship is huge. Mentorship is everything. And that's why you know, when I started this ensemble with like the nonprofit um, goals. So we're like fiscally sponsored um, and we're in the process right now of establishing like a 501c3 scholarship, which will include mentorship because everything that I've been able to do, I really feel has been like on the shoulders of someone else, you know, on top Mm -hmm. of someone else's accomplishment, I've been able to do these things. And I know that on top of my accomplishments, someone else will be able to do something even greater. Um. So I think mentorship on both sides, people that are in front of you, people that are where you're at and people that are behind you, I think is really important. So, you know, I have an amazing currently, like I have an amazing business coach. Her name's Jen Randall. She runs uh, Signal and she's like, she exclusively works with like women and people of color, uh, essentially. 
and because she is a woman of color who's like a you know columbia masters in business is very hyper qualified right but the way that she speaks the way that she understands my unique experience is something that i couldn't get from anywhere else you know there was someone that i grew up with in high school man the stories i have about this dude is wild but he became a lawyer like he became the youngest assistant da in pennsylvania history he has a company called gainvest he's like a multi-millionaire now and having that like person that I can talk to and call and be like, I don't know, I'm experiencing this problem as a business owner, mm-hmm. you know, um, the the person that runs my gym is has an amazing business mind, the amount of books and things that he's put me onto. Um, so it's really it's really just success comes from being humble and being able to know that you don't know enough. So it's just like, how can I get better? How can I be receptive? And then I think, you know, it's very much like an upstream uh solution but it's it's your spiritual practice too because i think being receptive to the vibration of the universe like where am i drawn to what am i meant to do and realizing that by by fighting something and like being like i have to do it like this because i went to school to play piano and to compose for movies Mm -hmm. I, i play and i compose but i don't do that like that anymore you know um so being receptive to what your ikigai is what your like true calling Right. Is meant to be. I, and I think that's only you have to be still. You have to take that time to know your mind, to know your body. Um, so, yeah, I th- I'd say those are like my pillars of success for whatever I've been able to achieve. And I, and I wanted to talk a little bit about funding. You know, when you talk about success, I, I see it as a, a continued cycle and not just a destination because nonprofits of every size, you know, there are multi million dollar nonprofits out there that are still running the race of continuing to get funding and, you know, developing relationships and all of that stuff. What has that looked like for your music academy? How do you, how do you keep the lights on? Man. So it's been interesting delving into the nonprofit space because that grant that we got from the state, that application was like longer than a college application, man. It was crazy. And it's, it was, it was very interesting because you have to present yourself I don't want to say it's one dimensional, but like from, again, the slivers of the moon thing, right? Like from a very specific perspective. And sometimes it does feel cheap in a way. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, I'm black and I play piano and like I grew up poor. So like I, I can mentor people, <laughs> give me money, you yeah. know? Um, so you do feel like you're like in this weird minstrel show kind of thing. Um, but there's, there's rules to all games, you know? And if you learn how to play it, you learn how to run the game eventually. I respect people that that's their main thing because it's hard. It's hard getting that funding. So the school is for profit. And that's why I have the scholarship program within the school, because the school pays for itself and pays for me to do great things. You know, it's been very hard to build. It's been a lot of my wife is my wife is amazing because, you know, there's times where, and I still work seven days a week, you know, but because I have this for profit entity, I'm able to put time and effort. So the chamber ensemble, I taught for free for like a year and a half, almost two years before we got funding. Mm. But I knew, I was like, you know, we just keep doing this. We get the content, we show that we're making an impact and like, we'll make this happen. And it's the same thing now where it's like, okay, we made these partnerships with um, Bay, Bay Area Music Project, Elevate Oakland, all these other, you know, nonprofit music groups that give time and space to, um, you know, these lower income communities. And um, we're able to work with them. I think the rising tide raises all boats. So it's one of these things where it's just their strength, their strength in numbers. So we just let it keep growing. 
Um, you know, I've put time into my other company. It's called uh, Powerful Piano, which actually we make these shirts that, that I'm wearing. Um, but we're in the process right now of releasing uh, music software, music reading software. It's a game. Um, but I really think that technology is an amazing road to equity because we're talking about barriers, right? Hmm. And a lot of barriers can be overcome in terms of education, in terms of equipment with technology. Um, so I, it's kind of a long answer to your question, but the way that I've navigated nonprofit space is by not making it my main, my main source of income or funding. And it's something that I do that I'm very passionate about. Um, but I made sure that the stuff around me was correct. So I could really put the time and effort and energy into the nonprofit because I think, I think it's wonderful. And I just, I wish it was run a little bit differently. I wish things were done differently. But it's not. And it's, it's just, you know, it's the rules of the game. And it's until you get to the spot that you can change those rules, there's no point in howling at the moon, you know, it's still going to be there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, with, with that being said, it, I can't help but to feel a little frustrated to hear you describe these nonprofit processes as a form of minstrelsy. It's like things haven't changed. Things have just shifted. I mean, is there is there never any dissonance oh, there yeah, for you? There is. And I think part of it is seeing the longer, the longer vision, like the longer goal, knowing that mm. this is my struggle, right? So like seeing my grandmother hearing these crazy stories. I'm like, that that was her struggle. And when I contextualize that, I'm like, it's not hmm. that bad. Not that it's not inexcusable, but the sense where I'm like, Right. I know that I can overcome this and I know that I can make a difference if I keep just keep my head down and keep doing what I'm doing. Um, it's not it's disappointing, but it's not discouraging. So with the Music Academy and even with uh, Powerful Piano, I wonder how um, what people are calling DEI, how that shows up in the work. You've already talked about having a business coach who, you know, has that sort of focus. Is that something that you've implemented into yeah. your practice. Well, you know, we have more people of color hired at my music academy than other music academies that I've seen. Um, so, you know, our, our, our vocal instructor, Miss Courtney, is amazing. She's like an internationally performed opera singer. But I think because she's Black, like she hasn't gotten the opportunity. So she runs all of our vocal programs, you know, and it's like trying to find ways to give a platform to people. It's the same thing with our scholarship program. The reason that we're doing these workshops at these schools is to identify kids of color that are talented. We just got a partnership with this um, mm -hmm. transportation company called Zum because like you were saying, driving, getting, driving to the lesson. That's a huge thing. My mom would work all day, drive to pick me up and drive across Los Angeles traffic to take me to my piano lesson. You know, that's, it's insane. And like, she's a musician. She understands the value of the music. She's a, she was a black woman working in corporate America, single mom at the time too. So that was, you know, like we we're talking about people struggle, like that was, that was her struggle. Um, but most parents won't see that. So you have to take away these barriers to, to get them to that point. So it's, it's really right now, we're just building that infrastructure to have, you know, more diversity, more inclusivity. And I think, for even the way that we teach chamber ensemble is very different. So I, I don't care what you do, just have an educated opinion on it. So in terms of interpretation, you know, I've yeah. had teachers tell me, you never play Beethoven with pedal. You never play Beethoven with rubato of any kind. I'm like, well, it's not as fun. So like, I don't want to do that, but I'm like, 
I'll have a reason. Yep. I'll have like a musical reason. So we give them cultural examples. You give them interpretive examples. Like this performer did this, this performer did this. It's totally different. What do you like? What don't you like? Then you have to analyze what are the chords? What are the progression? How is this related to the larger structure of the music? Or, you know, in the case of piano, um, when we're working on a complex piece with a student, I'm like, imagine that this was for an orchestra. What section do you think would be playing this part? What section do you think would be playing this part? Think about the individual timbres of those. Now, mm -hmm. do you think we should use pedal here or do you think we shouldn't? And that's a way better conversation than this is how you play it. And if you do it wrong, you're terrible. <laughs> you know, which I'm sure you <laughs> definitely experienced because I know I did. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I I'm thinking back now to um, my first bassoon teacher, you know, I uh, brought in some Vivaldi and he told me, well, this is a very classical interpretation of Vivaldi. And of course, in my mind, I'm like, well, so what? But of course, as the student, I'm there to, you know, listen and learn. And it's funny, spe speaking of him, you know, shout out to uh, Lacoli in Washington. I, I was very lucky to have a black bassoon teacher at the very beginning of my journey. And that significance is something that I have only been able to understand in retrospect. You know, I think we tend to take things for granted in the moment because, you know, for us, there was so much more than just the bassoon teaching that happened. He was able to be an example and engage conversations with me that dealt directly with marginalization of black folks in the field. Some of the things that he's been through, some of the, you know, things to, to be aware of. I wonder if uh, you're able to engage any of your students in that way. If there's a little black boy who, who you're teaching, how much of a responsibility do you feel to, you know, include somehow in your interactions with him, the realities that he will have to face because so he's black. Our school is located in San Ramon in California. And for those not familiar, the black population here is <laughs> below 5%. But I remember, and I'm still friends with this family. I had this one kid, Quentin, and I became friends with the family. I would like go to like the basketball games. I would go to like the school concerts and stuff like that because I wanted to support him in being a musician because I felt that duty, you know, I'm like, damn, this is a black kid. That's like getting into music. Yeah. Like I'm going to, I'm going to make that extra effort. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because I think that there's like another side of diversity, which is showing, you know, these privileged kids, most of the kids that I work with are like Southeast Asian. So Indian, Chinese, Japanese, because those cultures honestly value music more than black culture, more than white culture. Like that's just, that's kind of what it is for the most part. Well, yes. well that type, I would, of, say music, that type I of music, I would argue fair. that we, we, we value yeah. music. I would yeah. say structured <laughs> musical education, I guess, in, in the classical Western classical sense. Sure. That's a good caveat to add. Um, but showing these kids that, you know, will be future doctors, lawyers, politicians, like diversity is important. Being in a position of power, you have a responsibility. So it's not just, Oh, you have all these wonderful things and that's nice. No, you have to pay that forward. Like what you've been given is a blessing. Yeah. This is such a gift. And just telling these kids like, oh yeah, no, I was on my own when I was 17. You know, you're going home to this mansion in San Ramon. That's awesome. But you know what it's like to pay bills? Do you know what it's like to like decide between the light bill and buying groceries, you know, as a 17 year old? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you have a responsibility. So I think that that is an important component to diversity and inclusion um, that sometimes gets overlooked. So that's something that I, I really enjoy doing. And 
one of my favorite things about being a piano teacher is that I've had some students like 10 years, 10 years. So you get them from second grade, first grade, and I've had them finish, you know, high school. I still talk to a lot of my students that are in college or I had a few students just graduate from college, which is crazy to think about. Um, wow. But that relationship, I think the macro is affected by the micro. And I think it's important to recognize both of those things. So that's why I have these big plans and grand desires and dreams and aspirations. But I really think that the impact that you can make just by talking to someone is it's like, you know, the, the, the pebble, the pebble in the still pond, right. The ripples reach the shore eventually, you know. Well, considering all of the big things that you have coming up, how can folks learn more about you and keep up with uh, your, oh, your trajectory? Um, so Powerful Piano is we're launching Staff Runner, our first music reading game uh, in January. So if you go to PowerfulPiano.com, um, check out Staff Runner if you want to support. Um, I take all the proceeds from our merch and put it directly into our scholarship fund. Um, San Ramon Academy of Music also uh, .com also has the uh, store on there. It has more information about our chamber ensemble, our scholarship program. So if anyone is interested in those things, um, please reach out. And also, if anyone is interested in collaboration, you know, I, I remember listening to this podcast and being like, man, I want to talk to this person. I want to talk to this person. Um, so if there's <laughs> anyone like that, that's like, I would be able to offer James X, Y, or Z. Please reach out. My email is uh, james at sanramonacademymusic.com. Like I said, rising tide raises all boats. And I think that there is a huge task in front of us, but I think I think it's a beautiful journey to get to where we want to go. And I'm I'm excited for it. Well, where I wanted to uh wrap things up in response to many conversations that I have on this show, uh, especially when it comes to music education, I'll get a lot of questions from adults who want to pick things up. I think it's also worth noting that when it comes to the broader music industry in general, there is uh, a lot of attention put on making sure the youngsters know, making sure the youngsters learn, but those pathways don't always exist for us grown folks. I, I wonder what direction you could point uh, the adult learner in. Maybe there's an adult who wants to pick up the piano and really, you know, really learn it. What are the, what are the first few steps besides, you know, going out and buying a piano. Like this. <laughs> um, well, I think it depends on financial resource and time investment. I think those two things, you know, while mutually independent, definitely open or limit your resources. But <clears throat> one of my favorite things is, you know, I, I follow like a bunch of black classical musicians on the powerful piano Instagram. Um, it's like collecting Pokemon. I'm like, Oh, I found another awesome black pianist. Like follow DM. <laughs> let's go, bro. I see you out here. Dog. Like keep getting it. Um, so there's so many individual like YouTube channels. Like I have a piano course on Udemy, for instance, it's like piano for first time piano music theories for first time beginners. Um, there's so much content out there. It's like finding, a teacher that you resonate with. But I think the most important thing, um, and I'm a big fan of this book, Atomic Habits, um, it's just consistency and urgency. I think that um, if you can put in your mind that this is something that you like have to do, like you have to do this, you'll learn how to do it. And one of my favorite successes, I had an adult student. She was like a very well-trained vocalist, but she kind of played piano a little bit. And within a few years, like we got her into school for piano. And you can be done, but she, man, she practiced her ass off. You know what I mean? So like you have to pay your pound of flesh, like regardless, you know, 
Um, so understanding that the journey, you know, journey of a thousand miles is, starts with a single step, right? Um, I think that context is really contextualization is really important and understanding that it's a process. You know, I'm still getting better as a musician. I'm so excited to keep getting better. Um, and of course, comparison is um, what is it? The thief of joy, you know. Um, so uh, mm -hmm. whatever resources you can find, I think um, reach out, reach out, use them, talk to people. Um, and the Internet is contradictorily this horrible <laughs> terrible thing and it's one of the most amazing if not the most amazing like invention and tool of the 21st century so you could literally learn to play piano for free i think um to wrap there's this this funny story i uh i was very lucky to be able to study abroad when i was at cal and i got to play music in all these amazing places and i met this like uh, scottish dude that was running a hostel in Barcelona. And I was like, bro, I'm trying to find these open mics. Like I'm trying to, you know, cause I was trying to like make some tip money so I could like pay to stay that night. And he took me to this place, right? Yeah. He's got this super thick accent. And then all of a sudden he starts speaking like flawless Catalan Spanish to this girl, like next to him. I was like, bro, how did you learn? Like what? <laughs> like we got to hang out. And he was like, yeah, I was homeless the first like eight months I was here. So like I had to learn how to speak or else I like, I wouldn't have been able to live. And I think that speaks to the urgency, the importance of urgency and frequency and repetition. So it's definitely an extreme case, but it just shows like you can do, you can do extraordinary things. It's just starting with that one thing. So finding that YouTube channel that you really like, finding that teacher that you really like. We have teachers that specialize in adult students. You can find that. Lessons.com, lessonsratings.com. You can find, you can find it. It's just making it a priority and it's never too late to start. And it's, Music is just like the best blessing, the best gift that I think I could ever have been bestowed, have bestowed upon me. And anytime someone wants to be musical, like, hell yes, get after it. That's the tail end of uh, that Chopin etude that got us into today's conversation. Huge shout out to James, and thanks for joining me in this dialogue. Hope y'all will check out the links in the description here to learn more about James and uh, the incredible work he's doing over uh, in his corner of the world. All right, quick triloquy here. So before the interview, I mentioned the film American Fiction. Well, there's another film that's been put on my radar that I haven't seen yet, that I plan to see. And I wanted to share what I know about it so far so that there's a, a record of the before and after. It's sort of related to this idea of the, the ways in which we paint ourselves for the sake of opportunity and, and funding. Oftentimes, 
um, in ways that we don't really have a, a choice about for the sake of survival. I want to shout out uh, a YouTube creator named FD Signifier. He produces media geared toward expanded black thought. And uh, he did a breakdown of a Spike Lee joint called Bamboozled recently. What I'm gathering from his breakdown of the film is that the movie is about the links that black folks will go through to make a dollar. The main character creates a show that features blackface actors. The, the black main character, you know, creates this blackface show and it becomes so popular that audiences start showing up to tapings in blackface and saying things like, oh, I'm so happy to be a insert in word. You know, it's 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 really shocking to see some of the clips. And uh, it, it's interesting to think about this movie having uh, come out, I think it's something like 20, 25 years ago. And how this conversation, we're probably more prepared for it today than folks were back then. The images that uh, this YouTube creator shared from the film, I mean, I really can't say enough. They are so out there that it's hard to understand how this could make it to a screen in the first place. I, I, I fully understand why I had never heard of this film. It would definitely be banned from TV these days. I don't think there's a movie theater in the United States that would even play it. It's it's really something else. Um, but anyway, I'll offer my thoughts on the film after I see it, but I wanted to mention it today because when I think about arts funding and the stories that we have to tell people with deep pockets for the sake of fiscal survival, I think about where we draw the line and maybe where we don't draw the line. Um, you saw the show Dope Sick. If you saw that show about uh, the Sacklers and the uh, Oxycontin and just the violence that, you know, that that organization and that family of people put out into the world, you can sort of uh, understand the the harm in this this uh, and, and making these negative causes. You know, those folks supported lots of museums and other arts institutions at the same time. So when we could talk about them pushing uh, these narcotics that have gotten so many people addicted and have killed so many people, we also have to consider what they did for the arts and not to say that that uh, absolves them from any guilt. I think it just adds a nuance to this conversation of arts funding that folks on the art side, you know, development officers, all folks who with jobs like mine, we have to consider. We talk about relationship building in uh, the arts and in arts funding all the time, but we don't often talk about the power dynamics that are at play. We don't talk about the fact that black folks are out here tap dancing for coins, something that's portrayed literally in this movie, Bamboozled, I understand. And I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, uh, doing this sort of work is inherently bad. You know, as my boss at uh, the American Composers Orchestra says, all money is dirty money. It's just about what you're going to do with it and if you're going to make positive causes with that money. Um, so, you know, uh, again, I, I think I'll have more of an idea and, and an evolved thought around this concept. After I uh, see this movie, I'll be able to offer a, a really great response. But, you know, how I'm feeling right now and how it relates is that um, a lot of us are out here tap dancing. A lot of y'all are out here tap dancing and you're centering the money and uh, the impact that you can have with that money without thinking about the road toward that funding and what all of that means. And yeah, I want to be clear, I'm not separating myself from this idea completely anyway, because I've done my fair share of tap dancing too. This is capitalist America after all, but we at least have to know 
when we're shucking and jiving. I think a lot of the work that people of color do in classical music is nothing more than just that, shucking and jiving. We're, we've convinced ourselves that white acceptability is the one and only gateway toward realizing our artistic potential. We don't talk about black community-centric fundraising for orchestras. We don't talk about that sort of thing. We talk about going after these grants of creating relationships with uh, organizations, corporations, people with deep pockets, and that's that's that that that's got us where we are right now. We believe through our reliance on these white supremacist systems and structures, including what many people refer to as the philanthropic industrial complex. We believe that our presence within these systems serves the purpose of transforming those paradigms. When in Spike Lee's opinion, we're only giving white people the license to co-opt our stories and narratives toward the perpetuation of the systems that work so hard to keep us out in the first place and successfully keep most of us out. If I'm talking about black folks and people of color, it's like trying to transform the plantation almost. Could you imagine what the plantation owner convenings and conferences would have looked like in a contemporary context? I, I can imagine conversations and panel discussions with titles like transforming the plantation toward equitable results or maybe something like rapport building between in-house and field talent. I mean, it feels gross to say, but that's where my mind goes when I when I think about these sorts of concepts. So if that is a conversation that the plantation owners would be having, think about the conversations and the structures where you have black people helping raise funds and create relationships toward uh, the, the realization of these programs and initiatives. And of course, I'm just speaking metaphorically here, but I think there's, there's something uh, useful to think about there. I believe that there's a sheen that you can paint over just about anything to make it sound a little less abrasive, a little less violent. And I believe that's what's happened to many of us who work in the nonprofit arts sector. Many of us are just the pawns on the chessboard that allow for the chess players. And by chess players, I mean the funders, the corporations, the large institutions, the of the granting organizations. We're on the chessboard to affirm their version of anti-racism through their utilization of our skills and our talents. And I think that can even go beyond race. I mean, we think about class solidarity. What does it mean for a large grant-making organization to have millions and millions of dollars in their endowment, in their piggy bank, sparsing out some of it here and there to, let's say, bring violins to the inner city when folks in the inner city need food, when they need access to uh, health care, when they need uh, uh, mental health care, counseling, all of those sorts of things. You know, instead of empowering people to build and empowering people to realize their best selves and to expand thinking around things like classical music, so many of us are stuck believing that painting the face of classical music black <laughs> is an equitable practice. And even worse than believing that fallacy, we help execute that fallacy. I, I, I know I, I sort of touched on this last week. My, my ideas and beliefs are you know, beginning to shift when it comes to engagement of the uh, so-called classical field. So I'm going to look at this movie and uh, hopefully it'll open up some more ideas uh, and information in my mind. But where I sit right now as I'm uh, recording this before seeing this film bamboozled, I'm thinking about the good work that's done by people of color in the field of classical music by really going after this money, you know, being being the Robin Hood, uh, grabbing the gold so you can do good with it. I'm not completely dismissing that. I think a lot of great work has happened, but I also think it's worth the time to really critique the systems that have been 
created, the, the industrial complexes that have been created when we talk about black narratives and black stories and black labor being used to continue this cycle of funding something that doesn't really serve as broad of a, a world as it should, certainly doesn't serve the communities from which these narratives and these stories come, at least in my experience. So hope I'm able to take a look at this movie before I talk to y'all again. But in the meantime, thanks so much, as always, for listening and stay critical of everything that surrounds you, whether it's music, whether it's food, your family dynamics, your relationships, uh, your relationship with your work. We have to stay critical so that we can make sure that we're being as honest with ourselves as we possibly can be. And, uh, and so that we can stop pretending that we're doing something that we aren't actually doing or pretending that we aren't doing something that we are doing, including painting a proverbial black face <laughs> on something that needs to just be completely dismissed, if not uh, dismantled. Thanks again for listening. I'll share with more. I'll share more with you in about a week. And uh, until then, peace, be good or be bad, whichever you choose. See you next week. Mm-hmm.